our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Boys get dirty in the summer. When my guys were little, they spent so much time in the sandbox, in the dirt, that the bath water was visibly filthy by the end of bath time. I imagine that Bo will be spending some time outside this summer. Well, I'm remembering just yesterday what he looked like at the end of the day in Oma's garden. Because his hair was greasy and just wild and he was definitely ready for the bath and I love about dabble and dollop especially because I have Bo and he's two is their bubble bath I know when I put those bubbles in his bath he's going to be in there for a long time which is great And the bubbles are going to last. Dabble and Dollop bath products are made with high quality, natural ingredients. And as you said, there's everything from bubble bath to bath time shampoos, body washes, conditioner, lotion, bath bombs. We're using some Dabble and Dollop um, hand soap right now. I love the scent. I love it for myself. I'm using the coconut moisturizer. I love it. It feels great on my skin. So for kids and adults, Dabble and Dollop. You can go to Dabble and Dollop's website. That's dabblebath.com slash onboys. And you can get 20% off your first order. That's dabblebath, D-A-B-B-L-E-B-A-T-H dot com slash onboys and get 20% off for being a listener of onboys. We're talking with a true expert about how to support and care for someone who has suicidal thoughts. You may think this episode doesn't apply to you, but I encourage you to listen anyway or save this episode for later. Please take care of yourself as you're listening and know that in the U.S. you can reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by dialing 988. This is the On Boys Parenting Podcast. We are your co-hosts, Jennifer L.W. Fink of BuildingBoys.net and Janet Allison of BoysAlive.com. As always, we are so glad you are here and we thank you for supporting our sponsors. Suicidal thoughts are not uncommon. In the United States alone, each year, more than 15 million adults and teens struggle with serious thoughts of suicide. 
Now, if you've been following the news at all, you know that depression, anxiety, and suicide, especially among our youth, have been on the upswing. And you may know that boys are four times more likely to die of suicide than girls. And you may be terrified of those facts. Today, we are talking with a true expert about how to support and care for someone who has suicidal thoughts. You might think that this episode doesn't apply to you, but I encourage you to listen anyway or save this episode for later because learning how to support someone who has or experiencing suicidal thoughts and how to manage your own reaction to that kind of pain can save lives. And it is a lot easier to learn these skills when you are not in a moment of crisis, when you are not in stress. If you live with children, if you work with children, if you are a human in this world, these are good skills to have. I'm going to pause for a moment and say that if you or someone you love is in crisis right now, call 988 if you're in the United States. That is the suicide and crisis lifeline. Keep that number on hand, even if you don't need it today. Post it on the fridge. Our guest today is Stacy Friedenthal. She is the author of a fantastic new book, Loving Someone with Suicidal Thoughts, What Family, Friends, and Partners Can Say and Do. Stacy is a therapist with intimate understanding of suicide. She has admitted that she struggled with suicidal thoughts in her life, and she experienced a suicidal crisis of her son. Stacy, thank you so much for joining us for this important conversation. Thank you very much for having me. Your book is about loving and supporting, caring for somebody with suicidal thoughts. As a parent of teens, and I think I speak for many parents of teens, one of the most scary things is like, how do I even know if somebody has suicidal thoughts? Because a lot of people, boys especially, are not exactly going to come up and say, hey, mom, guess what? Right. It's not like you can say, so how was your day to day? And they say, well, actually. <laughs> right. They go. Ugh. Yeah. If, yeah. If you're lucky. <laughs> right. So what what do we need to know? Let's start from that point, because I think that is a huge concern for parents. Rightly so, because there's significant research that shows that a huge number of people, including teens, uh, don't tell somebody if they're having suicidal thoughts. And there was a study that came out just in the last few months that looked at teens and young adults in psychotherapy who had had suicidal thoughts, and 40% didn't tell their own therapist that they had suicidal thoughts. So these statistics are very daunting, you know, because they tell you that somebody could be having thoughts of ending their life and you have no idea. But I don't think they need to be so daunting that they breed hopelessness because there are things we can do. One of the very biggest and best pieces of advice is to ask. When I say that to people, they're like, oh, I could never ask that. Oh my gosh, that would give the person the idea. Or, oh my gosh, they'd get mad at me. It is scary. And that's why I I know you each have a copy of the book. So I'm probably not telling you something you don't know, but there's a chapter called Brave Listening. And I, I define brave listening as asking the questions whose answers you fear and listening to what hurts to hear. I love that description, by the way. I It's highlighted in my book, Janet. I'm sure it is in yours too, because I know you have a conversation with the book as you read too. Listeners, we're going to delve into this a little bit more too, because that chapter in particular, Brave Listening, we need to do this. 
with Mm. each other, not just with our kids. We need to do this with our spouses, with our friends, with ourselves. And it's a skill that most of us have not learned. My instinct still after all these years is to kind of shut things down because that's what I learned. That's what I saw. Mm -hmm. That's what I, I experienced growing up. So brave listening in the context of having the courage to ask the question. Give us some examples, Stacey. Sure, sure. Do you mean examples of how to ask the question? Yeah, let's start there because that was your first thing. You know, I asked, how do you know if somebody's having suicidal thoughts? An obvious answer is ask them. And that sounds like, I mean, what am I supposed to just do? Pick my kid up from school and go, so are you thinking of killing yourself? That's probably not how we should go about this. No, except that uh, I just recently learned of a true situation where somebody had gone through training and how to ask about suicidal thoughts and how to listen. And with the group of people that had gone through the training, they were all eating in a cafeteria afterwards. And one person was sitting by himself and the another person, you know, they had both been in this training together. And he said to him as a joke, so since we're alone, are you having thoughts of suicide? And the person got really like his eyes started tearing up. Mm. And he said, well, as a matter of fact, so we joke, you know, like, okay, don't just walk up to someone and say that, but I don't even know if that's so awful because you never know what will happen. But, you know, the reality is, is it's scary to ask and it's scary to admit, not just young people, but a lot of people have huge fear of admitting that they have suicidal thoughts for various reasons. One, they don't want to be judged. They don't want to seem Um, You know, there's all these negative stereotypes about suicide that don't help matters. You know, there's the stereotype that people who die by suicide are weak or cowardly or selfish. Each of those is unfair, but they're also damaging Mm -hmm. because then they can deter people from admitting that they have suicidal thoughts because they don't want to be seen as these negative things. Another negative stereotype is they just want attention. They don't really mean it. Mm -hmm. They're being manipulative, quote, quote. And so it's scary to ask and it's scary to answer. So I think one of the ways that that I encourage people to ask is to kind of, you know, we don't want to normalize suicide, but we can normalize thinking about suicide. Because as you said, every year, 15 million people in this country, and I don't know if you saw new statistics came out this week that 22% of high school students reported that they seriously considered suicide in wow. the year before. And this was the, these were the first statistics since the pandemic since the started. Pandemic. You know, that number was high before it was about 18%, but it's gone up, you know, so yeah. before it was almost one in five, now it's almost one in four. So it's really terrifying for parents. And so we can normalize that a lot of people have suicidal thoughts when things are really stressful or somebody's feeling upset about not getting into a college or having a relationship end that they can get so upset that the thought crosses their mind that they want to be dead or that they want to kill themselves. And do you ever have thoughts like that? You know, because if you ask that way, then you're conveying that, you know, this happens, Mm -hmm. you will be shocked, but you won't be so shocked that you can't talk about it. And you're also conveying that you're willing to talk about it. Now, a lot of people say no when they mean yes, or, you know, they say no, when the true answer is yes. And one of the things that I recommend is if the person says no, then asking, you know, truly from a place of curiosity, if in the future you were having suicidal thoughts, do you think you'd tell me? 
And you'll be surprised by how many people say no, or maybe you <laughs> won't be surprised. No, mom, I would never tell you that. And that's a great opportunity to be able to say, oh, how come? You know, right? what would make it hard to tell me? Well, I wouldn't want you to worry, or I wouldn't want you to rush me off to a hospital, or I wouldn't want you to be mad because a lot of parents, they, I, I think they come from a, a place of good intentions, but they do get mad. It's a human reaction. I mean, you know, when your kid is little and the toy goes in the street and you have to rush after your kid and your kid, they don't get mm -hmm. hit by a car, but your first reaction is to be mad at them. It's irrational. You're you're grateful they're alive, but it's just a physiological almost reaction at that point. Yeah. It's like the anger comes from a place of fear. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. And, and so, you know, parents, I have a website speaking of suicide.com and I have a blog post and I don't remember the exact title, but it's something like the 10 reason or 10 reasons adolescents don't tell their parents they're thinking about suicide. And it's not a scientific study. It's just things that teens right. have told me. And one of the reasons is the parents get mad and they say things like with everything I've given you, you know, we've given you such a great life. How could you possibly think of hurting us like that? Why are you so unappreciative? And so these kinds of statements can be judgmental and, and they may be sincere. It may be what the person's thinking, but it's not helpful in the moment. I don't want to lay guilt trips on anybody. And I know you, that you don't either. No, um, I do not. That comes across so clearly in her book, listeners. If you have personally been affected by suicide in any way, shape or form, you know, you struggle with all the, the what ifs and, and running it over and over. Did I? What if I had done this? You do. We all do the best we can with the information that we have. None of us are perfect. None of us have all the power in the world we can help, we can't prevent. So from that perspective, I want to acknowledge that. And I feel like one thing that we can all do, parents, educators, adults in this world, to try and within our own spheres of influences, create safer spaces where it is okay to have these conversations. Because what I'm getting from you and from reading the book is if we can create and normalize, we can talk about tough stuff, I am here if you're going to talk about this tough stuff and I'm to the best of my ability, not going to freak out and we'll try and work through this together. I think that can make such a difference in terms of suicide, but also, just, you know, anxiety, depression, getting through the tough stuff in life. So what you are saying kind of involves a shift for a lot of us in how we approach and deal with emotions in our homes, in our schools, in our communities. It really does. And that's why I call it brave listening, because some people say you need to not be afraid, but I think that's impossible. <laughs> Thank you, know, you when, for acknowledging that. Mm -hmm. Even for therapists. I mean, I think it's natural when you're sitting across from somebody who wants to end their life. I feel if you don't feel some fear, then you've become callous. Now, I know there's a therapist who says, he says it's shameful that we haven't trained fear out of mental health professionals. And I just very much disagree because I think fear is a natural response and it's a motivator. You know, fear motivates us to do better, but it also can be destructive. You use the phrase shut down that, you know, you were kind of conditioned to shut conversations down when things are bad. I think often we're not conscious that we're doing that. We Absolutely. think that we're opening up 
but we're really shutting down. So, you know, so if son says, I'm having thoughts of suicide, then you immediately say, how could you think that you're so young? You've got so you much so going much for to you. Live for. Right. You, you don't have any problems. And then, you know, then the, there can be a really painful remark, which is wait till you're older, then you'll know what problems are, <laughs> you yeah. know? And I also just want to be careful. And I know you said this too, that if you have done these things, and that now I'm talking to listeners, if you have shut down conversations, if you have reacted with anger, if you have um, been judgmental, please do not take that as an indictment because like like Jim said, you know, we we do the best we can with the information we have at the time and we were not taught these skills. I mean, mm-hmm. I can tell you Pythagoras's theorem. I can tell you what the transitive property of equality is because I learned algebra and geometry in high school, but I didn't learn how to listen. I, I wish can't I had the transitive property of whatever anymore. <laughs> I do remember Pythagorean theorem. That I remember. <laughs> I think that also to remind listeners, remind ourselves that it's, you know, we're in the deep end right now. And this idea of shutting down conversations and the practice of brave listening isn't just around suicidal thoughts. It starts when they're five, it starts when they're seven and they come home and say, I hate school or whatever it is, that that's that's the training ground. And I do want to circle back to what we talked about at the very beginning of that idea of how do we know if our teen, our tween is having suicidal thoughts. I'm curious what you would say to the parents. And I hear this often in my family coaching practice. It's the six, seven, eight-year-olds who are saying, I want to die. I want to kill myself. I mean, it just gives me chills actually just saying that. Do we take it seriously? Are they, you know, did they just hear this from from their friend? Are they just kind of flipping that off? How do we respond to that? We don't want to get too caught up, I don't think. Are they really serious? I think the tendency is to think that they're not. But how do we how do we respond to that? We are going to take a brief pause for these messages from our sponsors. This is a very intense conversation. Please take care of yourselves. And again, 988 is that suicide and crisis lifeline. We'll be back with Stacy's answer to my question in just a moment. This episode is sponsored by By Heart. Babies need to eat. And whether you breastfeed or bottle feed, use formula, combine all of the above, you need options. We wanted to let you know about Byheart Baby Formula. Byheart has a patented protein blend that gets the closest to breast milk. It includes two of the most abundant proteins in breast milk. And Byheart actually ran a clinical trial comparing their formula to a leading infant formula and proved that babies on Byheart have softer poops, less spit up, and easier digestion. Byheart is also the only U.S.-made infant formula to use organic, grass-fed whole milk. So if you need baby formula for your baby, consider Byheart. New customers can get 10% off your first order by using code ONBOYS at byheart.com. That's B-Y-H-E-A-R-T dot com slash podcast, and it is 10% off your first order. Byheart.com slash podcast. This is a limited time offer and additional terms and conditions may apply. 
It's terrifying if you have a teenager who wants to die, but for a child as young as, there's even been studies that have shown preschoolers can verbalize wanting to die. And there's uh, research that shows that most first graders know about suicide, but they don't know the word, Mm. but they know that some people can make themselves dead. And then by third grade, most children know the word. So, you know, this is not a developmentally, this comes much earlier than you might think. And it's very common for children to hear people say, whether they fully understand what it means or not, I'm going to kill myself or, you know, I'm going to kill myself if this. That is used both seriously and not seriously by people. And so you do wonder as a parent, you know, is my kid just parroting something that they heard somebody say on the playground, on the bus, on TV. And as Janet's saying, you don't want to overreact and we really don't want to underreact. Right. And so I would, I would say really whatever you can do to help the child communicate what they're thinking is best. And again, it's the difference between responses that shut the person down and responses that open the conversation up. And so if a child comes to me and says, I wish I were dead, you know, my immediate response, if I've got presence of mind, and I know I don't always, an ideal response would be to say, wow, really? What's going on? Not, you don't really mean that. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, or, or you're just saying that, or why would you say that? Like, I think we can ask, why would you say that? But tone is important. Tone is absolutely important. Mm -hmm. There is a shutting down tone and there is a, I am genuinely curious. Let's talk about this tone and kids. Oh my goodness. Are they masters at picking up tone? Yes. (laughs) They're very vigilant to that. And and one of my favorite quotes, like I don't have any tattoos, but if I ever did, I think I'd want to get it on my arm right here is be curious, not judgmental. Mm -hmm. And if parents can maintain a stance of curiosity rather than judgment, then I think that can help children and teens to be open about what they're thinking. I I mean, it's not automatic guarantee, but it's much more likely to help than a judgmental response. So again, if a young child says that they want to die, I would want to, I would want to know what's going on and, and what do you mean? Because like, I have Mm -hmm. a friend and oh my gosh, when her son was either three or four, he tried to end his life. I won't go in the details, but you know, in a very childish way and, and he could have been hurt. He really could have, but um, he was found and my friend said to him, what, what did you think would happen? And he said, I, I, I would have died. And she mm. said, and then what would have happened? And he said, you would have made me alive again. Mm. So he didn't comprehend the finality of death. Mm-hmm. And you, you do wonder that, especially with our younger kids, like, I mean, dead, but what do you know what dead means? So that's an excellent question. You know, what do you mean by that? What do you think is going to happen? Again, curiosity, not judgment. Yes, exactly. And even though he didn't comprehend death, it still was a a big danger sign. And that's what I would say is if your child says that they want to die or they're thinking of killing themselves, always err on the side of taking it seriously. I'd rather make the mistake of taking someone seriously who wasn't than not taking someone seriously who was serious. 
Okay, so continue us down that road. Okay, I'm the mom. I'm going to take this seriously. What do I do? What's next? Well, unless the person's in immediate danger, like they've got a weapon or they've already taken pills or something mm. like that, I think the the important thing is to try to have a conversation, you know, and to understand more what is going on, you know, and again, from this place of curiosity and not judgment, um, just to really dig into if the person's willing to share and also to, to make empathetic statements like that sounds really hard or, you know, you must really be under a lot of stress if you're having thoughts like this, you know, rather than the usual, it'll get better. You just need a good night's sleep. I mean, I remember in my 20s when I first told my parents that I had suicidal thoughts, my father said, you just need exercise and a vitamin pill. Bless his heart. He was an engineer and I wasn't expecting more than that because he was a problem solver. And my mother was the listener and actually she was a therapist. And so, you know, I wasn't very hurt by him saying that because it was just, you know, what I would have expected from somebody. That's what you knew for from dad. Yeah. I mean, he was a yeah. he was a fixer. But, you know, the more that you can help the person to feel that it's okay to talk about it and then the better now. So now let's say you've, you know, that they're having suicidal thoughts. So now what do you do? Mm -hmm. You know, and you understand the best you can, you understand why. And, and sometimes I think it's good to repeat back to the person. So if, if I'm understanding correctly, you're having thoughts of suicide because X happened and Y happened and Z happened and you're feeling hopeless that it'll ever get better you know, or you're, you're feeling like there's no way to solve this problem. I mean, oh my God, right before this interview, I read this horrible account of this teenage boy and horrible, I mean, in terms of catastrophic for this family, yeah. but it was an account of a teenage boy. I don't know if you've heard of this. He was involved in sex torsion. Yes. Incredibly common. Um, and we've mentioned it a little bit here and teen boys are uh, major targets for this right now. I mean, it is incredibly easy for somebody online to pretend to be somebody. Teen boy sends a picture of himself that is not a picture he wants publicly made. And then they say, if we don't get money from you or if you don't, whatever, we're going to make this public. If anybody has ever interacted with a teenage boy, I mean, you can imagine how absolutely potentially humiliating and devastating this is and why you don't want to tell your parents. And Absolutely. I can see how that can make a teen boy, any teenager, feel extremely hopeless. And trapped. And trapped. Mm -hmm. This boy, I think he may have even been coerced into like masturbating on, on the um, video. Like, I'm not sure, but they said he did a sex act. And then they said, we need $1,000. I don't know if the boy ever told the parents, I, but the father was able to see the chat that uh, the boy had. Uh, and he said to the people, I'm going to commit suicide, which by the way, that's not language I recommend, but he said, I'm going to commit suicide. And the people said, go ahead, you're dead anyway. Mm. And oh. the father said, oh my God. That just was the most heartbreaking thing to read. And, and and the father said, you know, this is pure evil that somebody would do that to someone. And then when they say, I want to end my life to say, go ahead. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, it's just, and he did. So that's mm-hmm. the tragedy. That's the catastrophe as he did in this life. This is another reason you've heard me say this before, listeners, use all of these news stories as talking points with your children. Because if you talk about, hey, I, I heard this story. Oh my gosh, this is horrible. You're normalizing it that you know about it. You wouldn't be completely 100% totally shocked if this happened because I know all of our listeners agree. We would rather deal with this issue than have you dead. Let's talk about this. So talk about these new stories about sextortion, about increases in rates and suicide. Yes, it's uncomfortable. But if you start having the conversations in your home, your kids start knowing that you are a safe person. You can handle this stuff. Our kids often don't trust us adults to handle their distress. And sadly, many of us have given them reason to mistrust us on that. Definitely. And I I would say the converse is true, too. It's good to intentionally have a conversation and to be mindful that you're kind of teaching in that moment without overtly teaching, but you're, you know, and, and to be mindful and to say things like, oh my God, if that ever happened to you, I, I would so want you to come to me. Nothing would be so bad, you know, that that it would be irrevocable or irreparable or, you know, anything like that. But also the converse is to be mindful of what you say when you're not being intentional. Yeah. And especially, Janet, you brought up young children. I mean, to be mindful of if, you know, say there was a suicide in the community and a parent says, I can't believe they did that to their family, mm-hmm. or I can't believe they were so selfish, you know, and, and all these negative stereotypes that children are listening to that too. Mm-hmm. That's really important. Boy, now I'm replaying what I have said at certain times, what my kids may have heard other people say. It's a shift for many of us. It is. Mm-hmm. You you were saying that, you know, somebody has expressed uh, suicidal thoughts. You know that this is at least a thought. Let's try and get some more information. Let's 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 open this up. I really want to underscore this point because you say in your book that calling 911 or heading to the emergency room is not the best option in many cases. And I want to underscore that because so many of us, I think, feel like you know, this is a tragedy. This is a crisis. I must take definitive action. And surely I am not equipped to handle this. I need professional help. Help us unpack why that is not the best thing to do. And and also then let's be clear, like what can we do? And when do we reach out to the experts? Because we really do need that support. Let's take a quick break to hear these messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be back with Stacy Friedenthal. Yeah, and I want to stress that professional help is on a continuum. I mean, there's professional help of making an appointment with the pediatrician or going to a therapist at one part of the continuum. And then at the extreme end is calling 911 or rushing the person off to an emergency room. I would never discourage getting professional help on the lower end of the continuum. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. I shouldn't say lower, but, you know, on the less right. emergent end That's of a great the way continu- of phrasing it. continuum. But I would discourage getting emergency help if it's not truly needed. Now, there are cases where you absolutely 
need to do something extreme, like call 911. A child is hearing voices telling them to kill themselves and they're behaviorally out of control. That's going to be hard for you to manage on your own. A child has either intentionally or unintentionally, you know, taken uh, a substance like, you know, maybe they they thought they were taking a benign pill, but somebody had laced it and now they're out of control. And Or I would imagine, I mean, if somebody has a weapon in their hand and, you know, they're not giving that weapon up, that is an extremely dangerous situation for everybody. Absolutely. Like if you're in danger because of their dangerous thoughts, then, you know, that's an indicator that you need other help. If they've already taken pills, you know, obviously Absolutely. You you're going to call 911. So I just want to make clear, this isn't a blanket thing. Don't ever call 911. But a lot of people, they have it in their head. And I think I think for some people, they think it's a one-time thing. Like, okay, my my child has suicidal thoughts. If I get them help, it'll be fixed and they won't have suicidal thoughts again. And that's great when it happens that way, but you have to hold in mind, it probably won't. And so you want them to be able to tell you again. And so ah. if you immediately go into emergency mode when it's not truly an emergency, then they may not want to tell you again. Mm-hmm. This can work in other ways too. And again, I mean, this is like, these are ideal standards. And I know that we're all human and we're not always ideal, if ever. So for people who are listening and going, oh no, I didn't do that. Or I did do that. You know, that's, we're human. And it's a chance to try to do better or to learn more. And I've had people who have written to my website, they've left comments or they've written to me personally and said they read the, because I also have a post 10 things not to say to a suicidal person, 10 things to say. And I've had people say, I went back to the person who I'd had the conversation with and said, I'm sorry, I don't think I really heard you. Can you tell me again? Mm. Repair. A great foundation of when to call 911. Now we have in the U.S., 988, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. This is fairly recent. How, when do you call 988? Whenever you want. What's going to be at the other end of the line? It's there to help talk people through not only a crisis, but before it builds up to a crisis. You know, you don't need to have suicidal thoughts to call 988. You don't need to have somebody with you who's having suicidal thoughts. So So I can call this for myself. I can call this if I am concerned about somebody else and I can call up and I I assume I give a little, here's why I'm calling. Then what happens? There is a very slight chance that if it's an emergency and if you don't give the, the counselor your information, there there are instances where the counselors have called the police against the caller's consent or without Mm. the caller's consent. Um, but that's, you know, that's mostly rare. I wish it were even more rare, but generally what they're doing is they're going to talk you through the situation. Let's, let's say for the purpose of our discussion, it's a parent calling about a child or a teen. Mm -hmm. So they're going to talk with you about things you can say to the child, uh, ways to keep the environment safe. You know, and let me just put this out here right now for anyone who has a firearm in their house that is that increases your child's risk for suicide, even if there aren't mental health problems. It Mm -hmm. just it ramps up the risk because 
kids and teens, they do things impulsively. And, and so do adults, but they have even more impulsivity. So the 988 counselor would talk with you about, you know, questions to ask, places to go. Um, should you take them to the, an emergency room? They'll or walk you through that. And then how to keep the environment safe and dangerous items and how to secure them. Like when our son went through a suicidal crisis, we did take them to the emergency room at one point and they gave us, they had just done this research study where they gave parents a safe so they could lock up dangerous things. Nice and to have an actual physical resource to take home to make this easier. It was such a, a gift. Like, I don't know if I would have thought of it on my own, but it was, and, and we still have it. It's bigger than a shoebox, but not much bigger. And you can get it now for like $30, $50. And we put knives in it. We put razors in it. We put pills in it. And mm. so a 988 counselor could have advice for you like that. How to talk with family members about it. How to talk with other children about it. You know, about this person's having suicidal thoughts. And so one of the beautiful things about this is most of us, all of us, we don't necessarily do our best thinking when we are stressed out, when we are worried, you know, ah, I don't know what to do. I might have known what to do when I was completely calm. But if I have found out that my child is having suicidal thoughts, I'm not going to be completely calm. I may use my coping strategies. What Stacy is telling you, what we want you all to know is you don't have to do this alone. Pick up your phone, call 988. There is somebody on the other end who is calm, who is trained, who can walk you through what to do so that you're not just relying on your brain in crisis. And I would urge you to first have that conversation, though, with the person who has suicidal thoughts, like to not immediately just say, oh, wait, I got to call yeah. money. That, right. I mean, there, there may be circumstances where that's justified. But for the most part, the more you can just be present and show that it's OK. And, and you know, sometimes people, they're kind of they may be testing the waters. Mm hmm. They want to see how you react and then they'll tell you more if you react a certain way and they'll tell you less if you don't. And, you know, it's not unheard of for someone to say, I didn't really mean it. I was just saying that. And sometimes you get into a situation where the parent reacts with so much upset and fear that that now the person who disclosed suicidal thoughts is in the position of comforting the yeah. person they just told. Yeah. And when really what they need is to be listened to and comforted. So it's tricky. We've touched on it a little bit of self-care and self-compassion, I would say, in these situations. And also about creating a team. We've talked about this with other guests on the show, how important, I mean, it's a village, we can't do this alone. And there is stigma around this topic. And what would you say to that person who is feeling alone who is reluctant to share with family members doesn't know who to talk to in their community so self-care i mean i think is so important and it's such a catchphrase now self-care mm -hmm, you is. know and most people know the story of if you're on the airplane and the oxygen mask comes on do you give it to your child or to yourself and the answer is you give it to yourself so then you can take care of your child you know, and we so, all know the story, and yet almost inevitably in real life, 
we all focus on our kid first. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be either or. It doesn't have to be focus yes. on my child or focus on me. It can be and. Yes. And I think it's super important. I mean, somebody who read the book before it came out, they called me and they said, I wish my mother had had this when I went through a suicidal crisis. She said, what what this book is doing, it's helping people to take care of themselves so that they can be more present for the person who has suicidal thoughts. And so in that regard, self-care is also other care. And um, so self-care, I mean, I think it's important emotionally and physically, like emotionally to recognize that this is really, really stressful. I mean, it's traumatic to Mm. have, you know, trauma is when your life is threatened, I mean, very technically, I'm going to define it. There are many other things that mm-hmm, are traumatic mm-hmm. too, but technically in the you know psychiatric world, trauma is when your life is threatened or when the life of someone you love is threatened. And so it's traumatic to have somebody you love who is having uh, thoughts of ending their life or maybe even has made a suicide attempt. And so being honest with yourself about the stress you're under and permitting yourself to be upset. Like, you know, I hear I'm saying, don't get upset with the person when they disclose it, but you may inside be upset and you may need to talk about that. And you may be angry. And it's totally Mm -hmm. okay. I mean, of course you are going to feel upset. You are going to feel sad. You are going to feel scared. This is among the worst experiences that we humans can imagine and experience. So on the one hand, yes, you want to be a calm listening presence for the person who may be experiencing suicidal thoughts or suicidal crisis. And you have a right to experience your emotions. And if you cope with them and process them and find safe ways to deal with them, it's better for you and for the person that you love. I think an overriding message, and I don't know if I put it this way in the book, but an overriding message is validate the person who's confiding in you and also validate yourself. Mm-hmm. Like your emotions are valid, whatever yeah. they are. Mm-hmm. They, I mean, the nature of emotions is that they don't need to be rational. They're emotions. And we can't control what emotions come to us. They're like the weather. You know, so if we feel angry, we feel angry. And now what can we do with that anger? What would be the most healthy, least harmful way to deal with that anger. And so that's where I think it's important to give yourself permission to feel what you feel. And I love this exercise by Kristen Neff, and I've got it in the book, the self-compassion meditation or the self-compassion break. And the very first step of it is, I mean, you know, after you've taken a few deep breaths and all that, but the first step is to accept what you feel. And to say to yourself something like, this hurts, you know, or I'm really sad. And to not try to talk yourself out of it, to not, because humans, we're such a fascinating lot. We tend to judge ourselves so much Mm -hmm. and we'll say, this hurts. Why are you such a wimp? Immediately for so many of us. Mm -hmm. I mean, to ourselves, we say that. Absolutely. You You shouldn't feel hurt. Other people have it worse. You should be grateful, you know? And, but in this self-compassion exercise to, to allow yourself, like this hurts, this really sucks. You know, I wish I weren't going through this right now. 
and to let yourself feel that and to feel compassion for the you who feels this way. Mm-hmm. And then the other steps in the self-compassion exercise are to recognize that this is what connects us to other people, you know, that suffering, not like, oh, get over it, suffering, suffering is a part of life, but suffering is a part of life. Mm-hmm. And this is what connects us to people. We're all doing the best we can. Mm-hmm. And we all encounter suffering. And then the third part of the meditation is to be kind to yourself and to say to yourself what you would say to a friend who's going through something hard, because we do tend to be meaner to ourselves than to other people. And even, you know, like to put your hand on your heart or on your shoulder and and whatever works for you. But, you know, like some people, they'll say, oh, baby, or oh, Mm -hmm. sweetie, you know, to themselves, Mm -hmm. like, oh, sweetheart, this does hurt. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry that you're hurting, <laughs> you know, things like that. So that is the piece about self-care is to permit yourself to feel and think what you feel and think and to be compassionate towards yourself about it and to understand why you're feeling that way, you know, to not minimize what the impact on you and how hard it is for you. The um, book is a great guide to have on hand. I highly recommend every house have a copy of this book if you if you live with other humans if you are raising kids if educator this book is fantastic because it's got these examples there are questions to you know to ask yourself to reflect on you can journal on them and it's you pick it up open it up to a page it is right there it's a toolkit that you can have for when if you need it Well, thank you. Thank you very much for saying all those great things about my book. Yeah. Thank you for writing it because (sighs) this is a scary and intimidating topic for people. And this book is something that you can have and it's there. You can learn and you can refer back to it as often and when you need it. And And I will say it's not just I mean, it is very much about suicidal thoughts, but it is communication skills. That's what I really loved about it is it is just human communication and you've laid it out in such a way that is so accessible. As Jen said, pick it up, read a page, read a chapter. Um, I love that your last chapter is fostering hope. Give us some hope. I never, ever want to minimize that there are people who die in this country by suicide every year and that one is too many. And right now we're, we're around 50,000. So that is way too many. Mm -hmm. And I also find hope in the fact that that means that 14,950,000 people who seriously consider suicide don't die by suicide. Mm -hmm. So the, the deaths are tragic and, and, we absolutely need to do everything we can to prevent suicides. And I find it hopeful that most people who have this conversation with their child or teen, most people who maybe they don't have the conversation, but they come home and their their child has attempted suicide and they get them help and the child survives, most people will not experience a death. And that I find to be hopeful. Even among people who attempt suicide and survive, 90% years, even decades later, are still alive. Now, that 10% is devastating because that's a much higher number than the average risk for mm-hmm. suicide in the regular population. 
but I find it hopeful that it's not higher than 10%. Yes. And, and then another piece of hope I would say is that for many people, not, not all, but for many people, a suicidal crisis is a, a, a gateway to positive change. And I don't mean, I'm not like recommending someone consider suicide as a way to improve their life. You can make positive change without having a suicidal crisis. Let's make that absolutely clear. Absolutely for clear. Absolutely. And there's something, you know, you may have discussed this concept already, but there's something called post-traumatic growth. Yes. That, you know, sometimes when people are at their lowest, it's a time for repair and for rebuilding and for making things better. You know, and this is Mm -hmm. crisis. I mean, the Chinese, I'm told this, I don't know Chinese, but I'm told that the Chinese symbol for crisis part, the first half of it is danger. And the second half of it is opportunity. Mm -hmm. And a crisis is dangerous, but it does have opportunity. You know, Mm -hmm. it has opportunity for change and for growth, both for the parent and their child. You know, they, they may recognize who's there for them. You know, they may find that there are people who are there for them that they hadn't expected. They may find that they appreciate things more. They may find they can communicate better now, you know, because they've been through this together. And then another piece of hope, I mean, really, this is the most obvious thing, is just that there's help available. There are medications that can help. There's psychotherapies that can help. Even exercise can help. You know, when somebody has um, mild to moderate depression, exercise is as effective as antidepressants. You know, so there are lots of things that can help people. Anybody who has ever experienced a tough thing in your life, and I'm guessing that's pretty much all of you listening right now, you know that one of the toughest things is you never know how long the tough thing is going to last. Mm -hmm. I always like it. It feels like you're in a dark hallway. And if somebody could just please tell me when this hallway is going to open up, then I could probably, you know, I could do better. I could hold on. Of course, you don't get that information most of the time, you know, and and listeners, you've been through dark hallways and you've gotten to the other side. So you've had that experience. And still, every time the dark hallway is there, it's scary. It's overwhelming. You don't know you're you're flailing about. You're doing the best you can. You are not alone. You do not have to be alone trying to find your way through this hallway. If you or somebody you love is experiencing suicidal thoughts, you can call 988. You can replay this episode. You can, and again, I highly recommend getting a copy of Stacey's book, Loving Someone with Suicidal Thoughts. There are concrete ideas in there. You can't do this alone. But with other people, with help, you can get through that hallway. Stacey, tell us um, about your website again as well, because um, your website is another fantastic resource that I want people to bookmark and have access to. Speakingofsuicide.com. And Janet, I know I answered the first half of your question, but not the second half. And that was you asked about, you know, the importance of having a team and what if somebody doesn't want to tell their Mm -hmm. friends and family, Mm -hmm. you know, what if they, they feel like it's so stigmatized? I can't overemphasize how important it is to have a team and to not be alone. And even just someone who can take the dog for a walk, if you're at a therapy session with your son and you can't get back in time or someone to spell you, you know, for one thing or another, all the way to someone who can listen, who can help, maybe even talk to your child. The more 
people that can be involved, the more connected you can feel, and also the more cared for and connected your child may feel. Mm -hmm. Now, if you feel scared of what people will think, or maybe the family member, whether it's your child or somebody else, maybe they want you to keep it secret. That can be really tough because then you're going to be deprived of those connections and that help. I would recommend two things. One is to think of who you could talk with and get support from who has to keep it secret, like a therapist or a minister, Ah. a hotline, you know, who can you talk to where they're not going to tell people you care about? And then the other is to just really take an on, like do a risk benefit analysis, so to speak, of what are the risks of sharing and what are the benefits of sharing? And then to do it the other way too, what are the risks of not sharing and Mm. what are the benefits of not sharing? And you may find that, yeah, there are bad things about sharing, but there are worse things about not sharing. Confiding in one or two or more people so that you're not alone. I can almost guarantee you, I can't guarantee you, but I can almost guarantee you that if you confide in somebody, they'll have a story too. It may not be their own story. It may be a niece, a nephew, a, a friend, a friend's friend, but so many people, like when they hear what I study and, and specialize in, they tell me their stories and, and then they'll say, I've never told anybody that. We do need to talk about this. We do need to break the silence around this. So thank you for your work and your book. As Jen said many, multiple times, get this book. I <laughs> This you. is also one that I am going to be uh, deliberately laying around the house mm-hmm. because it's good for everybody in the house to pick up and look at a couple of pages. So mm-hmm. It's going to be moving around from room to room. You watch. Stacy. thank, thank you, you for- so much for joining us for this really important conversation. Well, thank you for having me. We hope you found this conversation valuable. If you did, will you share it with a friend? And thank you always for supporting our sponsors. That allows us to bring you even more on Boys Podcasts. We are your co-host, Jennifer L.W. Fink of buildingboys.net, and I'm Janet Allison of boysalive.com. Thank you for being our listeners. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.